So today, um, I'm going to continue with our series, Irrefutable. And uh, we started two weeks ago. Then last week, we had, the, we had the Father's Day. So we did something a little bit different, and we're back on it today. And the Lord put in my heart that, that we need to really talk about the irrefutable truths of his word, what he's established. Because Psalms 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We need to have and be building upon proper foundations. A lot of times we as Christians, especially in the modern uh, world of, of, of Christianity, uh, we tend to build on Google. Come on, somebody. And a lot of different things that are out there. But let's, we need to build on what God has planned, what God has to say. And we, we get that deep in our spirit, we won't be moved. We'll be on sure foundation. So today, I'm a preacher by nature, uh, but I'm going to do some uh, teaching today. And we'll get you out of here on time, if not early. But I just want to share this with you. And before I get into it, let me just real quickly recap uh, two weeks ago to get us back caught up to speed. We discussed how that it was impossible for Jesus to be just a mere prophet or a, a mere teacher. But in fact, that he was sent from God and that, in fact, he is deity. He is God made manifest in the flesh. Jesus is not just a mere preacher or prophet or healer, and he's all those things. He's much more than that. He is God in the flesh. And I gave you five proofs of Jesus' divinity. Number one, I said that Jesus is just. And all that he does, he's just and what he does is then, as a person who is just, he has the ability to justify. He actually justifies. And we see that uh, with the woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. She's caught in adultery, and uh, these men, uh, for some, they must have knew the time of day she was going to be there. I don't know. But a bunch of peeping toms looking through a window. I want a church of people that aren't pointing fingers at other people, trying to figure out where their sin is. Just deal with your own, praise God. Take her and bring her before Jesus to catch him. Said, look, our law tells us that we must stone her. She was caught in adultery. What say you? Bible says he stooped down on the ground, took his finger, began to write on the ground. I can't uh, prove this, but it's what I feel in my heart is that he began to write down the sins of the men that were standing there with the rocks in their hands ready to take this woman's life for her sin. And the Bible says as he began to do this, they one by one began to drop their rocks and begin to leave. Could it be that Jesus writing down their sin and they knew he knew what they were all about and that they were a bunch of hypocrites and they walked away from the scene. But when Jesus is just and Jesus is a justifier, because when they did that, he looked to the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, none, Lord. There's none here. She said, he said to her, good, go and sin no more. So Jesus didn't cast judgment upon her. Jesus justified her and showed her mercy. And he's doing the same thing today, all those who will come to him. Amen. Number two, we said that Jesus reigns as exalted king. Uh, the book of Acts chapter 2 says, verse 23, says that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And he was exalted being king of kings and lord of lords. So we know he's exalted as king, but also as lord. And Hebrew tradition teaches that only one can be called uh, lord, and that is God and God alone. So when Jesus was known as lord of lords, he said, I'm God above all other gods and this is why they wanted to kill Jesus because he made himself equal to God. And the Bible says he didn't feel it was robbery to be equal with God. But he laid his divine privileges aside and walked 
as a man. Why did he feel it was robbery to be equal with God? Because he was God made manifest in the flesh. And number three, we said that Jesus lived a sinless life. Get that in your spirit. But also get this in your spirit. It wasn't as if he wasn't tested or tempted in sin. He was, in fact, tempted in sin, yet without sin. The Bible says that in every fashion he was, that he came, that they came against him, or in every fashion the enemy came against him, it was temptation, which means he was tempted, but he never fell prey to sin. This would be impossible as a mere man. The Bible says in Romans, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. You and I know that, but Jesus never knew any sin. Why? Because Jesus was man, but he was not born into sin. And without getting too deep into that, because this is not even a message today, just a little recap, is the fact that God and his word inseminated Mary, who was a virgin. So he was not born from beneath. He was born from above. He wasn't born into sin as we were. He was born sinless never having sin. Number four, Jesus was in fact undefeated. Challenged, yes. Defeated, no. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, the sting of death is sin. Everybody say sin. And the strength of sin is what? The law, but thanks be to God what ha that has given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to put our hands together right now and thank the Lord Jesus Christ that he is undefeated and brings us the victory. Come on. Turn your neighbor and say, you got the victory. The victory, the victory. Come on, amen. Number five, Jesus also is supreme. He reigns as king and he reigns supreme. John 8, 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets that are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. He said, it is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him. Wow, what a sad state. What a travesty to say that you have a God that you don't really know. And he's putting them on the spot as they're trying to put him on the spot. I love how Jesus does this. He said this, he said, of whom you say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was before the foundation of the world. Now, I want to get into a topic today. We don't have a long time to get into it, but let me just talk about it for just these few moments that we have together. I want to talk about the inerrancy of the word of God. Simply put, you can trust that book called the Bible with your life. It is the truth and nothing but the truth. So help him God. Inerrancy means this. Inerrancy simply means no error. There is no error in the word of God. There are critics, there are skeptics that want to punch holes in the word of God. Then they try to they take away the infallibility of the Bible. For instance, one of the arguments that they would talk about is the transmission 
uh, that we have from one language to the next or transmission from one script to the next and the errors that they see in that from the original Hebrew text, how things have been recorded and how there's errors in them. Let me just first say this. Nowhere does God promise an inerrant transmission of his word, but he did promise the inspiration of his spirit upon the word that he reveals to us. So yes, in fact, there are some errors in the text. But listen to me, not one of those errors preclude or change the overall message of the word even down to the smallest sense of a word or a sentence. The exceptional uniqueness of the Bible is unparalleled by any other book in the entire world. Are you ready for this? I wrote this down. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents. Everybody say 40 authors. Say three continents. Wow, who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of, one of a kind, but that's not the most amazing thing. It defies all natural explanation because shepherds and kings and scholars and fishermen and prophets and a military general and, and a cupbearer, a cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah, priests, all penned portions of the scriptures. They had different immediate purposes for writing them, whether recording history, giving spiritual or moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, from prisons, the wilderness, from places of the exile. They wrote history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions. They expressed their own anger, their frustrations. You can feel it, the joy they had, the love they had, the, uh, the frustrations that they had, all under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And although the Bible has, no, has so many authors, who did not even know one another. Neither did they know they were writing the so-called Bible. They didn't know what the Bible was. They were just writing down their stories. It has zero errors in its theme, zero errors in its message, and its consistency and congruency is impeccable. Speaking of Jesus, literally from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation with absolutely no defect. Amen. The vast majority of these transmissional errors are what we call grammatical. But let me give you an example. Uh, I don't have time to give you a lot of them. I wanted to, but I don't have time of what a skeptic would bring up. They say, well, you know, one writer said that there were two angels at the tomb when the women went there to anoint the body of Jesus, while one author said there's only one. Obviously, they got it wrong. Therefore, we can't believe anything that those gospels have to say. Wait a second. Hold on. Put on the brakes. They're not meaning to tell you how many angels are there. One says there are two angels, which is the correct amount. One says there's one. All they're talking about is the one that spoke to Mary. Amen, somebody. So one's actually giving you just a little more detail of what's going on, not correcting the other story. But that's the kind of stuff you'll find these types of people, skeptics, that will bring up to say, now we can't believe the Bible. None of the errors that we see have anything to do with the gospel, doesn't change the meaning, doesn't change the story, doesn't even change the stride. And they all wrote their own books from their own stories. 
Again, Jesus being affirmed by the Father, not only through his life and death, but also his resurrection. His resurrection is the ultimate authority of Scripture. Romans 1, verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets in the holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God, which with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we see a couple things. First of all, God makes promises with his word that comes to pass. Second of all, we see that through that process, Jesus has all authority because he's been raised from the dead. There's a book, I should have got it between services, I, I, I forgot to get the, the title of the name, but the author is Josh McDowell. You can get the book by him, I think it's either the proof of the resurrection or a case for the resurrection, I can't remember, but what it is, it's a book that's as if you were taking the facts surrounding the case of Jesus during that time. All the writers, the book, the Bible has to say, all the history has to say about it, and putting it together and then taking it to the Supreme Court to prove that not only Jesus existed, not only Jesus going to, to the cross to die, but three days later he got up out of that grave, and there's proof, there's evidence of that. Now, one of the greatest evidence that I see, because it comes down to a human level of what I see, how it works, and I think you would agree with this. Matter of fact, on, on Palm Sunday, we bring uh, our disciples out and we kind of tell the story, uh, each one of their, their backstory and how they died. Did you know that every single disciple, save one, every one of them died, but didn't just die, died as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ? And the one who didn't die lived to be an old man. They tried to kill him for his testimony in Christ. Why is that important? Because if Jesus told them for three and a half years, they're going to take my life, but don't be afraid. It'll be raised back to life again in three days. And he didn't do what he said he was going to do. They all fled when they took him that night. They all heard of his crucifixion because most of them weren't there but John. And they all heard what they, what they did to him and how terribly he was tormented and had to die. And they all fled in fear. You think for one second they're going to come out of hiding? They're all looking for those disciples to kill them the same way they killed Jesus and risk their life for, for, and their children's life and their family's life for what? For a God, a Jesus who didn't do what he said he was going to do? No. The only reason why they went to their own crosses, their own death, is because Jesus got up out of that grave and appeared to them and said, it is I. Put your finger into my holes in my hand and into my feet. I am alive. That's proof positive. And we know every single one of those men lived and they all died for their testimony in Christ. The biggest proof I can see. Let's look at what Jesus taught about the word of God. Number one, he taught its entirety. Complete its entirety. And by the way, the entirety of the Bible is inspired by God himself. Matthew 4, 3 says this. Now, when the tempter came to him, to Jesus, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, he's talking about how important the word is until you can live by it more than you can by bread. It will sustain you longer. But what I like to say here is that we see not only one temptation, but two other temptations during this period, this 40-day period in the, in the wilderness. 
and he's been tempted by the devil. Each time that comes up, Jesus speaks and says, it is written. It is written. It is written. Each and every time he says, it is written. In other words, the word of God, he knew from its entirety how to battle the devil. And let me just tell you this. If you don't get, start getting, start, Christian, listen to me, start getting back in your Bible, the devil is going to mess with your head because that's where the battleground is. And spiritual warfare is going to wage, and you're not going to know what end is up anymore. you got to know what the book's got to say about your life. I just went and came back from seeing the prophet, and I, I didn't get a word. And that's unusual because normally I'm, I'm kind of like a prophetic magnet. I always get a word. It just kind of always do. I didn't get a word. Were you bothered? Not really bothered. I mean, I'd like to have gotten a word. That would have been nice to have some things confirmed. Uh, it would be easy to have that done, right? It would have been nice. I mean, this guy's getting people's names and stuff, y'all. He walked up and said, your name is, uh, and he starts saying the name. He'd say it in broken English, you know, because he could see the name in the spirit. And they say, oh, my God, yeah, that's who I am. And Jackson, Jackson, my name is Jackson. I mean, just incredible stuff, right? Carbondale, Carbondale. What does that mean? Carbondale, Illinois. That's where I'm from. Amazing stuff. It'd been nice to have a word because it's easy. Ain't got to work for nothing. Amen. But are you discouraged, Pastor? Not at all. Why? I'm not living for a prophet to give me a word when I got a whole book called the Bible that's ready to give me any word I need. Come on, somebody. I just got to put my nose to the grindstone and give myself a word. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration means what? To be breathed upon. God breathed his life into the book called the Bible and all scripture has been inspired and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. How about Matthew 5, 17? Do not think that I came, Jesus said, to destroy the law of the prophets. He said, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill the word. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it all is fulfilled. In other words, Jesus promised that the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, would be completely fulfilled, not abolished. In fact, he declared that not, not even the smallest Hebrew letter, the Yod, the Yod, which looks like an apostrophe, would look like an apostrophe, it's like it's to make a, an accent. On something, or he said, or a tittle, which is a stroke of a letter, a small distinguishing extension or protrusion of Hebrew letters. He said, none of those, even down to those little accents, would pass away until it is all fulfilled. So Jesus taught the entirety of the Bible. Number two, Jesus taught the words history. In other words, he spoke of the Old Testament in terms of actual history. He spoke of Adam and Eve as actual people created by God in the beginning, who lived and acted in ways the Torah spoke of. He spoke of Jonah and his experience in the belly of a, of a great fish as an actual historical event. He also verified the events of the floods, uh, flood of, rather, of Noah's day along with the, the ark. He spoke of and verified God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and of, Lot and his, of Lot's wife. He spoke of Abraham and his life and his mission on earth. That's just to name a few. Jesus spoke of these historical events as if they were true, 
Number three, Jesus taught of the words sufficiency. That is completely sufficient for all you need. Uh, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Come on, somebody. Number four, Jesus taught of the words reliability. Mark 7, verse 6 says, he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart... Their heart is far from me. Number five, Jesus taught of the words indestructibility. You can't take it down. You can't destroy it. Matthew 5, 18, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, here we go again, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. It's got a will of its own. God inspired it. He he breathed on it, breathed life into it. It must, has to, will come to pass. God is a promise keeper that keeps his promises. Did I lose half y'all? Are y'all still with me? Come on, casual Christian. You got to get excited about God's word. God wants us to know what he's got to say. That way you don't get tripped up in somebody else saying they got a special truth or they got a special revelation. You go, nah, no. If it ain't the word of God, we ain't doing it. Amen. It survived for 2,000 years. It's going to keep surviving in our house. And yet Jesus says that he, he did not come to destroy the law, remember, or the word. He came to fulfill it. It's going to come to pass. Number six, Jesus taught of the words prophetic revelation. I love this. I've tried to minister this way my whole life. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. All things will be fulfilled which were written. Why? It's inspired by God, which God gives a will of its own to fulfill. It will be self-fulfilling. It's going to come to pass. If you don't do it, God raises somebody else who will do it, okay? Then he says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. I am so glad. I've been studying this word for 30 years. I am so glad that I can put that book and put it in my face and begin to read it and find something new that I didn't. I've read that thing so many times, and yet I'll read it and go, oh, my God. i never seen it like this before. Why? Because the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, which means that every time I pick up that book, it's living in 2019 like it was living in 2015, like it was living in 1999. Come on. I can go back further and further. Why? It's alive. My, my life progresses, the word progresses to me, and I see something I never saw before. And you all... Sitting back, waiting for another preacher to tell you something, rather than pick up your Bible and let the Holy Ghost reveal to you by revelation what you need to know. 
The whole of the Bible speaks of witnesses to the person and the work of Christ. Amen. It does. For instance, uh, who was the fourth man in the fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They threw them in. Who was the fourth one? Because there's the fourth one walking around in the fire with them. And the king says, that one looks like the son of God. Who was in that fire? By the way, who's in your fire walking with you when you're going through your... I say his name is Jesus. Come on. And you can't destroy the word and Jesus is the word of God. Yes, sir. See, that was called a theophany. Who do you think was that? Who do you think that Abraham was talking to? When he said, I don't know, you're different than everybody else. A man named Melchizedek came up to him who was king of the most high. He was a prince, the Bible said. And the Bible said he had no mother, no father, and no genealogy. Yet Abraham said, you are special, you are different. Bowed down to him and gave him a tenth or a tithe of all he had. That was King Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Abraham saw my day. Come on, somebody. Number seven, Jesus taught of the word's infallibility. Or in other words, the inability to be wrong. It's not possible. Can't be wrong. Impossible. John 10, 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. I told him this morning I could preach right there, but I can't. I don't have time. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture the Bible says cannot be broken, which means it cannot be wrong. Just because you don't understand what's being said, just because it's way over your head doesn't make it wrong. The Bible cannot be wrong. It always stands the test. Number eight, Jesus taught the words of an, the word of God being inerrant. It is inerrant. Uh, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. no errors. He makes this clear to the Sadducees. And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. You're wrong. You're in error. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. What makes them mistaken? What makes them wrong? What makes them in error? The scriptures and the power of God. Come on, somebody. They can't be wrong. You don't let you don't go to the Bible. You listen to me, Christians. You don't go to the Bible and adjust your theology and make the word of God burp out what you wanted to say and start twisting and adjusting. And oh, I think it means I think I, to justify your actions, your own personal desire, and your sin. I love you enough to tell you the truth. That word is it. That's all. That's all we got. That's how we're supposed to live our life. When I say it's it, that's all you'll ever need, I promise you. It's got more than you'll ever need. I promise that. Everything you need and more. But the truth of the matter is we got so many people trying to adjust the word rather than let the word adjust us. Is it comfortable? Not always. Matter of fact, sometimes it's very uncomfortable. 
but it's still the truth. Is God supposed to change the truth for you? No, because the truth is what brings life. He's saying you're wrong. You're mistaken. The scriptures are not. Men are often in error, but the Bible is not. It is the truth, the whole truth, so help him God. John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. You're going to have to go home, try to find your Bible, dust that inch of dust off of it, Crack it open, amen. Well, I got it on my phone. When's the last time you picked up your phone and looked at your Bible, but you looked, you've looked at Twitter twice since you've been in this meeting? Oh, my God, what's on Facebook today? You're so addicted to Facebook, you can't see straight. And you read every article, and you think, and you're, here's, what, here's how you know you're addicted. When you're reading everything, you go, I don't even want to know this. I don't even care. But you can't help yourself. You just keep, I got to read, I got to go out. What do they call it, honey? FOMO? FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Some of y'all got, just touch your neighbor and say, you got FOMO, you got FOMO, because we got a cure for that, praise God. It's called put your phone down, pick your Bible up. Amen. You can't live on hostess ding-dongs forever. Amen. You need some steak and some, you need some vegetables and, Amen. You got to have some sustenance. And the Bible is what brings that into your life. Amen, church. The first thing that God told me, I was completely backslidden, completely away from God, not coming back. I just told my testimony, so I'm not going to go into that very long. And I came back, it was 1989 when I came back to the Lord, and my life excelled. I was literally in the ministry by the end of the year. Not full time, but I was serving in ministry by the end of the year. By 1991, I was in full-time ministry, full-time. And so uh, it went fast for me. But the first thing he said to me, he said, read my word, and I'll show you how to praise my name. Because I went down and said a little sinner's prayer, but I didn't even know if it worked. I just knew I didn't want to go to hell. And I just knew he was dealing with me heavy. So I said their little prayer, didn't feel any change. I got that Bible, snuck it into the bathroom of my job and begin to read it on the job when I could. And I'm reading the Gospels, Book of John. And the third day, on the third day, I don't know if that's prophetic or not, it seems to be, it was like I'm reading about Jesus crossing the Galilee, and when I saw the word Jesus, it was as if it left off off the page and just smacked me. And when it hit me, I fell to the ground, I began to bawl like a baby, and I repented. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I said, this is the God I'm serving. And I knew I'd never go back ever again. I was completely, 100% changed, transformed. That, for me, came through the word of God. So powerful. Amen? Did you all get something out of this today?